Emily is going to provide for us. Father God in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you show us a way of faith, that you show us a way of work. God, this morning I pray for the work of our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are coming together to bridge this gap, to share this gift, to share this gift. God, we uh, recognize our limitations. We recognize that in our charity we can fall short. Sometimes our works are good ones are not present, and both we sin. And we are so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ, which covers those sins. May we rejoice in that this morning, even as we pray that those who truly profess the faith would rejoice in it this morning, and we ask God that you would turn our hearts to your word to hear about this mysterious interaction between faith and works and what it means for us who follow Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. You guys can be seated. It's been a crazy week. Um, we uh, had our, our women's conference this past weekend, and uh, that involved a lot of preparation and getting stuff ready, and so... Uh, I am uh, very, very thankful for everyone who uh, helped get that ready, um, some uh, very much behind the scenes and, and some very much uh, front and center, uh, but especially our women who, who put their heart and souls into getting the event together. Uh, that certainly was a, a good work. Uh, a few weeks ago, when uh, it was a little colder out, we were struggling with our heat. In fact, we went most of the winter not realizing that our heat wasn't actually working. That's how mild the winter was. But we, it finally got really cold, and, and it was not warming up in here. And I started talking to the maintenance guy for our building about it. And I kept getting, uh, he's a really good guy. He's a really helpful guy. 
he gets stuff done for the most part. But I was getting the sense that he knew there might be a little bit more of a problem going on with the heat than that he had permission and authority to just take care of. And so I think he was hoping against hope uh, that little minor tweaks would fix the whole system, even if they didn't make any sense. Um, you know, telling me, well, I, I can't be, I can't be uh, turning the thermostat down at night because it, it's too cold. You know, you just got to leave it on and let it go because it's, it's going to take too long to warm up a space like this. But finally, we got to the point where we realized, no, it's really uh, a problem. At least I realized it was a problem. He wanted to try a couple of things. And I said, um, I won't say his name. If he's listening, I, I, I really, he's a good guy. But uh, he may be mad this day. Um, I said, man, uh, I got to know this is, is going to be fixed. It was like a Tuesday. I'm like, if we try this, if we try what you're saying, and this doesn't work, this was like the fourth or fifth thing, right? Um, we're, we, I don't want people to freeze on Sunday. We, we can't be freezing in here on Sunday. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm not going to let you freeze. He says, Chris, Chris, I'm not going to let you freeze. You've got to have faith, man. Isn't, isn't, that what, isn't that what the Bible says? You've got to have faith in me. You know? Yeah. I'm not going to let you freeze. It didn't work. And uh, <laughs> we were pretty cold that Sunday. And so he, he wanted me to have faith. And faith was a great thing. And generally, he's come through it for me. And faith is a wonderful thing. But if the faith uh, that I had in him, if his profession and convictions about what he could do or prevent from happening to me were not met with some sort of measurable action, his conviction and his enjoiner to me to, to have faith in him was worthless. It didn't do me any good. It didn't do a number of you guys who were cold that morning any good. Um, it was meaningless. As we look at, at James chapter 2, the, the last part of the chapter, verses 14 through 26, James makes the point that Christian belief comes with Christian works. And he's going to make this argument by looking at, at two things. First, he, he wants to look at the weakness of mere belief. And, and secondly, he's going to point us on the more positive side to the essentiality of good works in the Christian life. So he wants to argue for the weakness of mere belief and the essentiality of good works in the Christian life. So I want to dig into this, and hopefully this is reasonably coherent. Like I said, it was a crazy week. My, my prep was not where it wants to be, but I think there's some meat here that uh, I, I hope that we can digest a little bit. So, so let's dig into this first point that James wants to make. And, and he kind of, these are overlapping ideas a little bit, um, is, is the weakness of mere belief. Now, we've been going through the, the book of James uh, here for the last few weeks. Um, we're just about the halfway point in this series. And if, if you're new, if you're new-ish, uh, stick around for Pete's with the Pastor. But also you can catch up uh, on, with the sermons that are online. And, and James is an interesting book because he kind of jumps around from topic to topic. But he, we've been talking about he weaves sort of linguistic threads uh, to show kind of underneath the surface how all these themes are connected here. And 
He, he gives us a couple rhetorical questions in verses 14 and 15. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so he's kind of picking up on this theme that we talked about last week um, of, of a brother maybe who, who comes into the worship service in, in raggedy clothes and, and, and doesn't have it all together. Um, we talked about a couple weeks ago the idea of true religion, taking care of the widows and the orphans, and who are the widows and orphans in our uh, culture. And, and so there, there is this, still this strain uh, in James's thought about concern for those who are maybe without those who are part of the body of Christ, who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, who've connected themselves to a member of a local church, and yet they're being treated as periphery. They're being treated as sort of secondary, uh, second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, they're not given the same due consideration. So we have this, this theme kind of weaving throughout James, but he's got a different point here this morning. Both of these Rhetorical questions kind of expect a, a negative type of answer. What good is it, or what does it profit? Well, it doesn't profit. It, it, of course, James, it, it doesn't do any good. Um, if, if you don't give him the things uh, that he needs for the body, what good is that? Oh, well, it's, it doesn't do any good. It's like saying, have, have faith that you're not going to freeze, and then not doing anything to prevent the person from freezing it doesn't do any good. Um, we, we see here in his, in his example, if one, uh, if one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. The, the position that James puts this hypothetical Christian is in is, is this one where they're expressing a sort of sympathy. They're expressing a sort of empathy. But there's a hollowness to it, right? You know, we have this way as Christians, and so-called Christians, as the case might be, of throwing out these sort of pious platitudes, these empty expressions, but they're, they're sort of our shibboleth. They're, they're sort of our, a code word that lets other people know we're in. We're, we get the Jesus thing, right? And, and so we kind of couch everything in this like holy language. And that's how we ensure that other people perceive us as spiritual and faithful. Right? We just we use the right words. Um, here is, it's be warm and filled or go in peace. Um, go in peace is a, sort of a Jewish style saying. Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians in the diaspora. And it's sort of a, a wish to be robustly well. The idea of shalom in, in Jewish culture is sort of a wholeness of, of life, being, being well, um, you know, sound of mind and sound of body and sound of circumstances, uh, things to be at peace, to be at rest. Uh, it's a very holistic sense of peace. Maybe a close parallel in our society would be be blessed. Be blessed. 
Uh, be warmed and, and filled seems like sort of a, a wish prayer. You know, I, I hope this happens for you. It's sort of like, I'll be praying for you. Man, that's, that's really hard what you're going through. That's really rough. I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying for you. We have a tendency to show off our faithfulness with the right buzzwords, right? We use the right lingo, and, and so we show that we have faith. But note how weak that kind of faith is. Because it doesn't do anything for the person in need. Now, I'm not saying that if, if you say, I'll pray for you, that your prayer doesn't actually uh, impact things. I, I believe in the power of prayer. I don't want to communicate that message. But at the same time, is, is well, first of all, how many times do you say, I'm going to pray for you, and then you don't? Um, so let's be real right there. It's just, it's just words spilling out of your mouth, right? Uh, that's the first thing. But, but secondly, off, how often are we praying for God? How do, how do we think that God is going to intervene for this person? Perhaps they're going to send people into their life that make up the gap. And so when we say, Am I, I'm praying for you, do we ever stop and think that maybe I myself might be the answer to the prayer that I'm, prayer, the prayer that I'm praying for them? Does that make sense? We're hoping that God works it out for them without involving me too much. Not always. That's not every instance. But I do think it's more common than we like to admit. So this kind of faith does not have any sort of uh, a usefulness for the person in need. It's weak. James uses a second example. So the first example he uses is sort of a, a somebody in need. And the second example that he wants to point to in demonstrating how weak mere belief is, is he uses the example of, we could say, doctrinal consistency. So James cites here in uh, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The, the great creedal statement of the Jews was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. From Deuteronomy. It was a great statement of, of monotheism and also the unity of God, his, his oneness. And it was sort of this great creedal statement that stood them over and against all the pagan nations that surrounded them. And so... Uh, compared to the, the Greeks and the Romans, and before that, the, the Philistines and, and the Moabites and, and all these other tribes and tongues and languages that surrounded them, this one statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, sort of stood against all of those cultures. In other words, you could pretty much shut down most of those pagan religious systems and pagan religious beliefs if you held to that one statement. Sort of like if I said Jesus is Lord over all. all right, once you say that Jesus is Lord over all, maker of heaven and earth, then you are quite clearly 
removing a lot of other possible religious options from the table. And so such was the, the Jewish Shema, writing to Jewish believers. He's saying, look, you, you've got the right doctrine. That's fantastic. You should, James says. He doesn't poo-poo it. He doesn't, he doesn't say that that's bad. You should have the right doctrine. Doctrine's important. But it's not enough. And as evidence, he points to the demons. He says the, the demons have perfect doctrinal fidelity also. Heck, the demons probably know better than you know that God is one. The demons know it very well. Those who are the most opposed to God have pretty good theology about God. But the response is what? They shudder. Probably, it's a little unclear exactly what James means, but probably the best way to understand their shuddering is their knowledge of their impending doom. That though they know rightly about God, they believe the right things about what God is like, their doctrine is pretty good, they know they're doomed and they shudder at the very thought of the one who will judge them to doom. And so a Christian who just has doctrinal fidelity, just has the correct beliefs and that's it, should also be shaking in his or her boots because it's not enough to just believe the right things. Believing the right things didn't help me get the, uh, the heat on in here. And, and believing the right things will not necessarily uh, get you into a right relationship with God any more than it gets the demons into a right relationship with God. Part of that is something, it's a theme that I talk about quite a bit, and it's a theme I talk about quite a bit because it's a really important theme, is that Christian belief is not merely intellectual assent. It's not merely agreeing with certain ideas. That's not Christian faith. What, the way I like to look at it is, is the idea of Christian faith is bound up. There's, you know, when you look in the New Testament and you see these words of faith and you see words of belief, it's all the same word. The Greeks had one word for something that we have three words for. Belief, faith, trust. And sometimes as you read in the New Testament, this one word, pistis, uh, it, it has more of a sense of belief, intellectual assent. Sometimes it has more of a sense of uh, trust, a relational commitment. And I think both of those ideas are sort of wrapped up in the Christian notion of faith. Christian faith combines both of those things. And that's why often as you read the New Testament, you find you can't separate those ideas when Paul is talking or Jesus is talking. Faith, Christian faith, involves both certain intellectual commitments, certain assents to, to doctrinal points that we, we cannot escape, that are realities. We have to agree to those things. But we also must bring in a trust commitment. There's a relational component to our faith that we cannot avoid. And trust is an important concept. 
Trust is one of those things that you can only show in your works, right? So uh, th- we've got some married uh, couples here. And uh, if you, wife, say that you trust your husband, but you, at night, log into his Facebook account and just double-check what uh, he's been, who he's been talking to and scrolling through the, the profiles... Jameson, why did you have to look at Allison there? No. Um, <laughs> do you really trust them? And, and hey, you might not have good reason. I mean, you might have good reason not to trust them. I'm not, I'm not questioning that. Um, but you see, there's a lack of trust, right? Trust is born out in actions. Uh, if, if I tell my kids to go clean their room, right? And then you don't clean your room because you want to do something else. They're not trusting me. They're trusting that what they want to do is better for them than what I want them to do. It's a lack of trust, right? So, so trust is born out in, in, in our response. Or another way to put that is trust comes out in obedience. So if you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did the things that he said he did, that's fantastic. Do you trust him? If you trust that Jesus is who he said he is and did who he said he did, and then when he asks you to do something, what will be your response? Obedience. And so Paul can talk about the obedience that comes from faith. So, um, James has in mind a certain idea of faith that is more on the, can we bring the, I'm kind of booming there, um, more on the side of, of intellectual assent, and he's concerned about that. There's a problem with an over-reliance on intellectual assent among this band of, of Jewish Christians. But as James points out, that kind of faith that does not have works is dead. It's useless. It's weak. On the flip side, this is the second idea that James brings out, is the essentiality of good works. The absolutely essential nature of good works. Um, and he announces his objective to make this point in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. So James has kind of set up this diatribe, this imaginary argument with this imaginary opponent who's contradicting him at every turn. And here he has the imaginary uh, opponent saying, you have faith, I have works. Almost as if these things can be separated. There are people in the body of Christ that, you know, their thing is, is great, strong faith. That's their thing. There's people in the body of Christ that their thing is great, fantastic works of service. Right? Some people have got that thing. Some people have got that thing. They're, they're separable. They're both nice. But they're different categories of things. And James rejects that outright. So James isn't railing against faith, per se, rightly understood, but he's railing against this idea that you can have one without the other. 
And he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. His point is that the works are the evidence of his faith. Again, he's moving more to this, this trust idea. There's an obedience that should naturally spring out of our faith, and that is how he demonstrates that he really has it, not through pious platitudes and promises to pray, uh, but by actively working out faith. He wants to give a couple different examples. In trying to shoot down this idea that, hey, it's wonderful if you live doctrinally pure, but you can do so without all the good deeds, or that, that hey, you guys over here are just wonderful do-gooders, but your doctrine is kind of trash, that, that that's okay. He's going to shoot that down. He's going to shoot that down with a, a couple different examples. He wants to talk about Abraham. Abraham, uh, he calls him our father, but he's, he's a Jew, writing down their Jews, and he was the, all, all Jews saw themselves as descendants of Abraham. Um, and he, he says that he was justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. In order to understand the point that James is making, you've got to understand a little bit about the Bible. Um, if you're not familiar with it, this is all taken from Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, um, God calls Abraham. Calls him from what we would probably consider Iraq today. Calls him to uh, follow him, to go where he will show Abraham. And Abraham obediently follows that. In um, blessing Abraham... Um, in order to bring a blessing on the world, what we know is that God was working out a, a plan of salvation that would culminate in the birth of Jesus Christ. That the sin and evil and wickedness that, that takes place in, in the beginning chapters of Genesis that caused a plague of sin across the whole world would be remedied by the family of this one Abraham. God would bring forth a line of people and eventually a savior for the entire world in the person of Jesus Christ. But as Abraham is getting older in age, he wasn't seeing any children, and God had promised him a great inheritance, great land, a family. Where was this going to be? He was approaching 100 years old, and yet no child. And God promised to him that it would happen. God promised to him that it would happen, even though it seemed unlikely, even though it seemed impossible. And the scripture said that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, soon after, he has a son. A son named Isaac. And when that boy becomes of age, God makes a request of Abraham. The son who's going to inherit everything, the son he's waited his entire life for, uh, the son who will carry on his family's name, who is going to carry this blessing of God, God says, take Isaac, the son that you love, and sacrifice him. 
And so Abraham takes Isaac up on a mountain to worship God, ties Isaac, binds him up, and prepares to slaughter his own son in obedience to God's command. God stays his hand at the last minute. And the angel of the Lord says, Now I know that you fear God. What James is trying to bring out here is that although Abraham had faith, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness, it wasn't righteousness in and of itself, but God counted Abraham as righteous because he had faith. Yet, that faith could not be separated from faithful action. And so 12 years later, God essentially tested Abraham on the very nature of the promise that he had made to Abraham to see if he would be obedient even in the face of something that seemed anathema to him. And he was. And, and James says that in that way, his faith was completed by his works. It's not in the sense here that the faith was imperfect. That's not James' point. Not any more so than when um, Jesus says that the love of his Father is completed when we love one another as Christians. It's not like God's love is imperfect, and then when we love one another, God's love becomes perfect. It's not, that's not what he means. He means that it reaches its purposed end and conclusion, that it accomplished all that it was designed to accomplish. True faith has an end in real works real good deeds in the name of Jesus Christ. And so, in that sense, our faith isn't brought out to its fullest completion until those works take place. But faith will reach its end. Faith will reach its goal. Faith will result in these good works. That's why... James can say that faith apart from works is dead because any sort of real living faith will produce those kind of works. But a dead faith will not. Now this gets into a little bit of a complicated discussion here um, because James' language about Abraham is, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. He makes the same point. He uses the example of Rahab, who we talked about last year when we preached the book of Joshua. In the same way, Rahab the prostitute, wasn't she also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rahab's story, if you remember, she had heard about the great things that Yahweh had done for the people of Israel. So she knew about them, intellectual ascent. 
And then when she was in the uh, presence of actual Israelites there doing God's bidding, she sided with the people of God rather than the people of the world. And so her intellectual assent meant fa met faithful action, and they came together in the events at Jericho. But in what sense then was she justified by her faith? In what sense was Abraham justified by her faith? Because when we read Paul, we see that uh, we're justified by faith, apart from works. Now James says we're justified by our works and not by faith alone. How do we square these two things? How do we uh, fix these two things? Famously, Martin Luther... The reformer, uh, 1500, uh, excuse me, 500 years ago, uh, when, when he nailed those 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg and, and really launched the Reformation as we know it, and he, he had such a stake on this faith alone as a rallying cry, Luther was so stumped by James that he even wondered, maybe James just really shouldn't be in the Bible. Um, he eventually concluded that James should be in the Bible, but he was so thrown off by James's language and it just so upset him, he didn't know how to, to wrestle with it well. Um, and, and I think maybe Martin uh, Luther overthought it a little bit. Uh, the word that James uses here for justify, it has a range of meanings. And Paul certainly uses it in the sense of... Um, declared righteous, declared right in the eyes of God, in, in a sense of something that is foreign to us that doesn't belong to us. So when Paul talks about uh, being justified by faith, Paul means something along these lines. Because of Christ's righteousness, because of what Christ did on the cross, because Jesus Christ died the death that you deserve to die, and rose again from the dead by placing your faith in him, his righteousness is credited to your account. You are declared righteous. That's sort of the idea that Paul means by the word justified. What James means by the word justified is, is, is the most common meaning of the term, which means sort of vindicated in judgment on the basis of facts. So it's more of an idea of a, a courtroom trial, and you've got a plaintiff and you've got a defendant, and they're, you know, they're arguing in, in front of Judge Judy, and, and she looks at the facts, and, and she you know, knows who's lying to her, and she knows who's lying less to her, and she <laughs> declares a, a verdict on the basis of the facts as, as she has seen them in favor of one side or, or the other. And, and there's this sense that, okay, so the facts line up, and this is a, you, you've been keeping the law, you've been doing your good deeds, and, and in that sense, um, when the judgment comes, the, your deeds will be weighed, and we'll see that your deeds measure out. So they're, they're talking about different aspects of, of the term here. And this fits in with what James was talking about last, we were looking at last week, when James uh, warns us Christians uh, to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And so, 
there's a, a judgment context already in the book of James. So what, what James is saying um, is, that, is different. Paul is saying that justifies how a person gets into a right relationship with God. For James, he's talking about what a relationship must ultimately look like to receive God's final approval. That's how Doug Moo, a uh, well-known New Testament scholar, uh, summarizes James's position. So, but what about faith alone? But isn't, isn't that our rallying cry, faith alone? If you talk to me, I will, I will tell you that the, the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can be rescued from the penalty of our sin and, and our death uh, on the basis of God's grace alone, and it's appropriated to us through our faith and nothing else alone, and that was accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ alone, and it's all to the glory of God alone. I will tell you that until the last breath I take. And yet James says a person is not justified by work, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You're confusing me, James. Is, is Paul wrong? What's going on? Well, most scholars believe that this book is very, very early. In fact, probably the most common situation, most likely situation for this book is it's being written around AD 40. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's very early in Paul's ministry. It might even be the idea, you, you probably know in, in Romans chapter 6, Paul has to deal with uh, some people who are claiming that what Paul is saying is that we can just go and sin all of what we want because grace has covered us and, and we're free from having to do good works. And Paul says that's a, that's a horrendous lie. We don't teach that and that's wicked. But you can see that, that what Paul had been preaching outside of Judea was getting twisted from a very early age. And it could be, uh, and in fact it's probably likely, that James is hearing an early version of a twisted version of, of what uh, Paul had been preaching. Not what Paul actually was preaching, but a twisted version of it that had been filtered down uh, through the grapevine, so to speak. The very slow-moving grapevine in the, in the ancient world. Again, James is using all these terms with slightly different means. You might say James is more Ephesians 2.10 than Ephesians 2.8 uh, If you're familiar with that famous passage from Paul, uh, Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For, this is Paul, were I his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so James is focused on some Christian who says, oh, I'm saved by grace, not by works, so I can do whatever I want, as opposed to the Christian who says, I'm saved by grace through faith, and that frees me to serve God without the fear of condemnation. That frees me to serve God without fearing that I don't measure up. It frees me to serve God not out of a fear of judgment, but an absolute love for the master who commands me. 
It's a different place of service. So that's James's. So many of those issues are not front and center in your head, but some of you think, I know it is, and so I wanted to touch on those things. What, what James is saying is that these two things are absolutely inseparable. Uh, you see that faith was active along with his works, so that faith was completed with his works. You could even translate, so you can see that his faith was working alongside his works. So that the scripture was fulfilled, and he was called a friend of God. And so you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What he's saying is that on the day of judgment, you will be vindicated by your good deeds and not by your faith alone. You'll be vindicated. You'll be shown to have been in the right. Now, this, this of course, creates a dilemma. For those of us who are do-gooders, The danger there is that your good must follow through from a true faith. The Bible says that anything that's not from faith is sin. Because it doesn't just matter what we do, it matters why we do. So if we are doing the things that we believe God desires, but we're doing those things out of a selfish motivation. Or if we're doing those things, frankly, for any reason that isn't our love of our master and the glory of our master, then there's a really good chance that we are doing those things out of sinful motives. And those things won't please God. And so... Um, Look, unbelievers, non-Christians can do good things. And, and we praise God that they do do good things because if they didn't, this world would be a mess, right? But because people who don't love Jesus and don't follow Jesus have enough of their maker's imprint on them that they can't escape doing things that they are designed to do. Okay? But it, it doesn't mean that those things are righteous because those things are being divorced from the source. They're being divorced from the connection to why those things matter in the first place. On the flip side, though, those of us who are very, very concerned about doctrinal purity and making sure we believe all the right things about Jesus and all the right things about the Father and all the right things about the Spirit... And, and uh, not dismissing those things, because these things matter. And I think if you rightly understand them, they should produce fruit in your life. But if all it does is it stays there, if it's head knowledge, if, it's, if it's, um, uh, it just puffs you up, to use the, the Bible's phrase, and it doesn't produce good works in your life, then the question becomes... Do you really know Jesus? Do we, do we, to take, to go back to the parable we talked about last week, you've got the, the weeds, uh, the, you've got the, the, the seed that's sown in the weedy soil. 
You know, and, and it chokes them out because of the cares of the world. And you've got the, the seed that's sown on the rocky soil, and it's choked out because the ground is not deep. And, and Jesus compares these things to the trials and tribulations of this world, the hardships of this world, um, the desire for riches in, in some cases. And, and what happens is if you believe all the right things about Jesus, but you don't trust him, you don't love him, deeply so that you care to do the things that he, that he wants to do, then, then you're going to drive, you're going to wither out, you're going to prove that your faith is worthless. The, well, that's enough on that. It's ironic that Luther, um, Martin Luther, who was so unsure about how to handle the book of James, uh, maybe got the point as well as anybody else in his commentary on the book of Romans. He wrote, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done. But before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. They are absolutely, essentially connected. Such that from the Christian standpoint, there really is no such thing as a true and saving faith that does not produce a fruit of righteousness. It just doesn't exist. Those are the, the seeds sown in the soil. Those are the seeds sown among the weeds. They die out. That doesn't mean, oh, they're just a weak Christian. No, it means they're not a Christian. The author of Hebrews says, this is how we know that we have been saved, past tense. This is how we know, present tense, that we have been saved, past tense, that we endure to the end, future. The evidence of your past being, being rescued from the penalty of your sin by God is that you do not stop trusting Jesus Christ. And if we really trust Jesus Christ, it's going to produce fruit because when Jesus says, go, if we trust him, we go. If we don't trust him, we don't go. It's that simple. And so if you want to know the evidence for a, a Christian life, you look at obedience. This is why uh, in, in Matthew 18, uh, 15 through 20, and Jesus talks about a, a, a professed believer who refuses to repent of a sin. They're, they're caught in a sin, and, and, and Jesus uh, says that you, you go and you privately you kind of confront them about their sin, and, and they're like, no, I'm, I'm hanging on to my sin. So you take 
two or three other believers with you and you confront them about their sin, they say, no, I'm hanging on to my sin. And so you take the matter before the whole church and they say, no, I'm hanging on to my sin. And Jesus says, then treat them like an unbeliever. Because that's obviously what they are. Because a person who has true faith is going to manifest that true faith in obedience. Not perfect obedience, not not sinlessness. That's why repentance is so important. Because when when we reveal, uh, when others, Christians, reveal sin to us, when the Holy Spirit reveals sin to us, the proper Christian response is repentance. That's, that, is our, that is our obedience. And when we're not doing the things that we ought to be doing, or we're doing the things that we're not supposed to be doing, sins of commission, sins of omission, um, in other words, we're not doing the good deeds that we should be doing, or we're doing the bad deeds that we shouldn't be doing, those things need, both need to be corrected. The way we correct the sins of omission, the things that we should be doing that we're not, is we start doing them good deeds that are pleasing to Jesus Christ. Not a litany of laws that we check off in the morning or each evening before we go to bed. Did I, did I knock off all the things that God demands of me? Not that. But a, a, a loving desire to come to the feet of our Master and, 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 and see what He has for us today. See what He has for us this moment. See what he has spoken to us in his words and to go forward in those things. To turn back when we need to turn back and to recommit ourselves when we need to recommit. And so, in that sense, faith and works are absolutely inseparable. If you understand the Christian faith, then you understand that these things are inseparable. If you have been surrounded by Christians who are awful, mean, wicked people, and you think that they're, they're all hypocrites and nasty people, um, I've got a, a discouragement and an encouragement for you. Uh, the discouragement is, is that we don't follow Jesus because we've got it all figured out. We don't, us Christians, we don't follow Jesus because we are good people and we understand what we need to do. We follow Jesus because we know we're bad people, we know we're wicked, and we know we need to be rescued. We know we need a Savior. The flip side of that, though, is if you have been under, if you've been in an encounter with those who profess to be Christians, and not just a momentary uh, event, not a bad ex- one-time bad experience, but if you have unfortunately had the privilege or disprivilege of being in, around and in a community of people who simply do not reflect a loving obedience of Jesus Christ, and their lives, not momentarily, but just characterized by an absolute lack of care for what Jesus says for his people, then you probably haven't experienced a community of real Christians. And I would urge you not to judge Jesus by those who aren't his servants. 
Because the Christian faith is clear and James is clear that Christian belief, true faith, comes with Christian works. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you do not uh, save us to be slothful, that you do not rescue us in order to rest. But that even as you made us in your image, so you have remade us, have given us new life and new birth in your Son, Jesus Christ, to be restored to that image. And even as you work good for those who love you, may we be those who work good for the sake of the one who loves us. May those things be a witness and a testimony to the world, both in our faithfulness and in our contrite repentance and owning our mistakes when we fall short of your glorious standards once again. We do fall short, God, and we are so thankful for the blood of Jesus that makes a way for us and covers our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.